Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, where we talk about the legal and business issues behind the glitz and glam of Hollywood and the entertainment industry generally. I'm your co-host, Paul Starker, veteran entertainment lawyer. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast. And uh, we're just super excited to have you all for episode three. The first two episodes have gone great. We love the feedback. We love that the fact that people are enjoying the show. And we're really excited to give you episode three. Paul, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. And just to get it out there, this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to be legal advice. There you go, Paul. The lawyer hat comes on. Just got to be clear about that. You know, <laughs> happy to entertain and educate. We are not uh, giving out legal advice. So, Mesh, some pretty big news happening this week. Obviously, it's not really our place to comment on the broader geopolitical issues and you know the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We're going to stay in our lane. We are an entertainment legal podcast. But at the same time, you know, I don't think we can really ignore the elephant in the room. You know, we couldn't possibly do justice to all the implications and the significance of what's happening and the tragic events that have occurred this week. But there are some very interesting entertainment angles about what's happening here. And so, you know, I think we have a very informative episode for people. Yeah, Paul, look, I think both you and I know that, again, we're not journalists. We're not here to comment on what's happening. Besides the fact that what's happening is it's terrible. It's terrible for the people in Ukraine. It's terrible just from the standpoint of nobody wants war. It's something I honestly didn't think was going to happen. I never thought that Russia would actually invade. Well, they did in 2014. You know, they invaded Crimea. So it happened, but, you know, we kind of forgot about it, I guess. Yeah, well, I, and I guess right now, it's good that everyone is aware of what's happening. It's being covered in the news. And I think everyone's aware of the fact that, like, you know, an invasion is a terrible thing. War is a terrible thing. Like, innocent people getting harmed, troops getting harmed. Like, that's not good for anyone. And... It is interesting from a standpoint of content. You know, I was going through my TikTok and I'm noticing now the amount of people posting stuff that's happening in different parts of Ukraine where whether you're watching the news is one thing, but if you're on social media, like you can't escape what's happening. And someone made a comment that I saw on a TikTok video. It was just a terrible video. I don't, I don't even want to describe what I was watching, but one of the comments was World War Three or any war happening in the height of social media where on TikTok, you're not escaping this. These videos go viral. Everyone knows what's happening. You know, and we think about how kids consume content now and they're consuming it on TikTok and Reels and Snap. I mean, specifically TikTok here, I think is actually going to be a really, really important platform to getting things out that maybe these kids are not watching the news or whatever news you might watch. You can't escape what's happening on the ground and people are able to post that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting take. I don't 100% agree with, you know, social media giving everyone 
pure clarity into what's happening. I mean, I think there is, there's an element where, you know, as we saw, people can be misled and sometimes a snippet isn't the whole story. Yeah. And so we'll talk about this later. I mean, Sean Penn's actually been in Ukraine since November and he's making this documentary uh, along with Vice. And so I think his goal is to give us an accurate portrayal, maybe a, a look that you wouldn't get through the media. But I agree with you. I mean, I think it's increasing the exposure. That it, it's definitely some raw things that are being posted. The question is, you know, what are the what are the motivations? Like, so there could be some fake accounts. There could be things. That's true. There could be misinformation out there too. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. But absolutely, it's impossible to sort of close your eyes to it. <laughs> that is true. I I didn't think about that from the standpoint of obviously manipulating things like TikTok and social media. But yeah, I mean, you have to decide yourself now where you have to personally be responsible for like how you take in information and how you consume content. But regardless, it is interesting that you don't have to turn on the news to know what's going on in the world anymore. For sure, for sure. And so one of the things, there's this conflict, Russian invasion of Ukraine, which we're really not gonna get into as far as like the political side of things. But one thing I've noticed is that it seems like countries, the US, Europe, and international organizations have chosen to take the non-militaristic approach, right? So they're expressing their disapproval, their disdain in, in other ways. They're not really getting involved to sort of going to war alongside Ukraine. But what they're doing is imposing sanctions and issuing statements. And another instance is UEFA it has announced that they are going to move the Champions League final from St. Petersburg to an undisclosed location, but it was supposed to be May 28th in St. Petersburg. And they decided that to continue that would be maybe an, a tacit endorsement of what Putin is doing and what Russia is doing. So they decided to move it. Welcome back with Ukraine under attack. The sports world has been quick to rethink ties with Russia. FIFA has now banned the country from all international competition. With more on this, let's bring in Yahoo Finance's Dave Briggs and Dave, the IOC now also under pressure to ban Russian athletes and officials. Yeah, so this is interesting. Let's give a little context on UEFA and the Champions League and what actually that means. Uh, in this case, the Champions League is the Super Bowl of soccer. It's a global event. It represents a massive portion of like sports viewers who watch soccer or football, depending on where you are. And the Champions League final in this case is that major event. And in this case, that was supposed to be held in St. Petersburg. But UEFA is making a statement. The organization behind the Champions League is making a statement that, hey, we don't endorse this. We cannot support it. And from their standpoint versus a government imposing sanctions or freezing bank accounts, they're saying, we're taking a stand here. We're not going to have our final in St. Petersburg. And I think you bring up an interesting thing when it comes to what does that actually mean from the standpoint of how big of an event that is, how many contracts are in place, you know, everything from the city supporting it, hosting, travel. Give us a little bit of context on how something like that works. So, I mean, sports and entertainment are, are intertwined. Sports is big business, as you know. Nations create these massive elaborate proposals to win the rights to the Olympics or the World Cup. And, you know, the jury's out as to whether that's actually economically beneficial 
because of the amount of costs that are incurred to sort of build out your infrastructure and your stadiums. But that's not really the point. The point is, it's big dollars. It draws a lot of exposure and eyeballs and people plan for it. And they make a lot of investments and they sign contracts to basically allocate their obligations over years and years. And so in this case, for example, the World Cup is supposed to be in North America in 2026. So there are plans in place, sponsorships, other contracts to have you know the, the games and the stadiums and the media rights tied to broadcasting these events and getting all the global eyeballs. So generally, you're going to have sponsorship agreements, you're going to have broadcast agreements, you're going to have agreements uh, for travel and equipment, and it's, you know you don't know which teams are going to be playing, but there's a lot of contractual exposure to events like this. And so it's interesting, the sponsor of the stadium is Gazprom. You know, For those who don't know, that's the state-controlled gas company in Russia, and it's you know, one, I think the biggest gas company in the world, mm. uh, but it's a very interesting dynamic. So you have all these contracts, generally speaking, that say this event will occur at this place and you'll have the right to broadcast it or you'll have the right to be the exclusive sponsor. And then what happens if that event doesn't take place? Is it a breach of your contract? You still have to, let's say if someone paid you, you know, 50 million in sponsorship fees or some more reasonable number and then it doesn't happen, do they get their money back? Do they no longer have to pay? If you have a telecast deal, is it a breach? And so that concept, that doctrine is called force majeure uh, slash impossibility of performance. And this is something that came up a lot during COVID, starting really in March when the NBA, Adam Silver decided right. to postpone games. And so every professional sports team other than the NFL postponed or canceled games and most junior level sports were canceled. And uh, the question is, you know, these are big dollar events. And let's say you're, you know, a broadcast network or something like ESPN, for example, you have an agreement to provide a certain amount of games per year to justify the fees that you charge. And if those games don't happen, you know, what happens? Do people get refunded? And so that's all sort of the force majeure doctrine. And so the underlying concept is if you are not able to perform your side of an agreement because of something that happened that you had no ability to foresee that you had no control over, then you should get a pass. Right. That's the concept, right? And that's whether or not it's in your contract, that's the doctrine of impossibility of performance. Contractually, it's a matter of force majeure because not every jurisdiction recognizes this impossibility doctrine. And so then it's just a matter of what your contract says. Right in the force majeure provision. Now, I mean, if you're UEFA, obviously in this case, one, you're making a statement, you're taking a stand, but I'm assuming they clearly went through their contracts here and they said, you know, what's the implication for us? This is still an organization, you know, and it's not just like the stadium that is being held in. It's not just the sponsors. There's probably some travel deals as well. There's like the economic effect of like having thousands of people if not tens of thousands of people come and watch something you have you know potentially like hotels and businesses all these things are affected but i'm assuming that contracts probably exist only really with when it comes to viewership and a stadium or do you think it goes beyond that uh i think the contracts probably go beyond that i think there's probably hundreds of contracts i mean anytime that two parties have an obligation that's going to play out over time with expense there's usually a contract right so that's basically you know the whole point of it and so um i imagine that there's a lot of contracts and there probably was a bit of cost benefit analysis 
that UEFA undertook. But this may have been one of those things where the leadership said, hey, we don't know what's going to cost us or what the ramifications of, of moving this are going to be, but we cannot, as an organization, continue to have this final in Russia. The PR fallout or the, the message that it sends is just not something that we're willing to do at any cost. But they probably went through their agreements and said, if we move it, what's our exposure contractually? You know, where, what can we right. get out of and what's fixed, what's movable? And they probably made some phone calls to some of their bigger non-Russian sponsors and said, hey, would you work with us? Would you want us to do, you know, maybe we can find another, finding another location is probably not the hardest thing to do, but just moving everything is just an undertaking. I mean, as we saw with the Olympics, I think there were some countries that were thinking about boycotting because, you know, of other issues and broader political issues. I don't think there were that many boycotts in the end, but it's often a cost-benefit analysis, but yes, to answer your question, there are more contracts than you probably would ever expect. Yeah, and like, look, I mean, it seems that whether UEFA is making a stand here or not, let's assume that they are also being pressured by other organizations or other teams or whoever, right? Because like, when it comes to UEFA, we're talking about Europe as a whole that's involved, like multiple countries that are involved in this organization, multiple teams that exist all over Europe. And let's also assume that they probably behind the scenes came and stepped up. And it was probably like an overall conversation where maybe UEFA felt pressured to do this. And granted, I think the right move for them to do something like this, but it probably has an impact of several people are chiming in and UEFA makes a decision overall being like, most people here are don't want to endorse this type of military behavior or political behavior that Putin is doing. And so UEFA makes a decision here like, hey, we have all these people that are against this. What is the economic impact of our relationships here and all these other countries and cities and teams and players, which also influences their decisions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they held an emergency meeting, I think, Thursday or immediately after the invasion, most recent invasion commenced. And it's not always about dollars and cents, right? Sometimes there's bigger factors at play. And then it's a question of doing damage control after the fact. Like maybe they decided, hey, this is what we're going to do. Now we have to manage this and mitigate the costs. Often that happens. And we can talk about sort of like what the force majeure provisions say and, and the impacts of it, because they can be very narrow. They can be very broad. In some cases, something may not qualify as a force majeure. And then you think you have an out in your contract, but then you take a closer look and maybe it's it's gray or, or not helpful. So the areas that I would focus on are things like uh, how the event is defined. Sometimes it's limited to things like acts of war, terrorism. A lot of clients are adding the word pandemic now as, as a result of the COVID pandemic. And sometimes it's a question of whether you can't perform or whether the performance would be frustrated because let's be honest, if it's a question of can't perform, I mean, UEFA could have held the final in St. Petersburg. The stadium's still there. The city still exists. So it's not a question of impossibility of performance as much as it is, hey, there's an event that happened you know, this war or invasion that we didn't control, we couldn't have seen it coming. And now it makes it a bad look, but it's not necessarily impossible. And so that depends on what the contract says. And we don't know what the provisions are, but that's the sort of thing that you look at. And generally speaking, if these force majeure events, they can have other provisions that say, hey, if it goes on for 30 days and either side can terminate, or if it goes on for, you know, some period of time, then, you know, you can't just keep delaying it forever. But the idea is once the event stops happening, you're supposed to 
resume mm, whatever you were supposed right, to be doing. Right. So, for example, if the war were in Russia and it wasn't safe to have an event there, then what they would do is say, okay, well, we're not going to do it on May 28th. We're just going to postpone it to another date at the same stadium. That's another way to sort of mitigate the fallout. But they're choosing to just do it in a different city altogether. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Paul, you, you know, you and I were talking earlier and you gave me an example, obviously not the same thing, but in terms of when it comes to contracts and obligations and moving things, you had told me a story that when you were working with Marvel and it had to do with the Iron Man 2 premiere in London, can you explain what happened there as an example of like how these contracts and moving all these things work? So this was, I mean, kind of a lighthearted sort of humorous thing in in hindsight. It was very stressful when it happened. So one of my responsibilities early on when I was working there was to sort of handle the promotion and marketing for the films. And basically the first film that was released after I started was Iron Man 2. So we had contractually obligated you know, tickets for premiere sponsors. And the premiere was supposed to be in London in April of 2010. And so we had a bunch of promotional sponsors that were providing support in terms of media buys and cash to sort of be the official blah, blah, blah of Iron Man 2. And then they get tickets to the premiere right, and right. they get to have their logo on all the materials. And so that was one of my areas. And then right before the premiere was supposed to happen, there was this volcano which erupted over Iceland. And it wasn't really a huge eruption or anything. I don't think there was a massive loss of life, but there was so much ash in the air and volcanic ash is very damaging to airplane engines. Mm. So there was basically a no-fly zone over London during the week of the premiere. So we couldn't get people in or out of London. So we had to relocate the premiere to LA. And so my boss said, hey, we're moving the premiere to LA take a look at all the agreements, let me know what they say and if we have any issues. And so I was responsible for the agreements and they didn't all have the best force majeure provisions at the time. Oh, and for those that didn't, so I basically had to make a spreadsheet where are we covered, where is there an issue? And then for all the ones where there's an issue, I had to call all the companies and just try to talk it out. And everyone was cool about it, surprisingly. You know, we we're like, hey, we'll give you the same amount of tickets to the LA premiere. And people were cool. You know, it was a different time. It was a less sort of like aggressive litigious time and it worked out. But I was super stressed right. because <laughs> at the time when you had to make all these calls to these companies, you know, they could have been a lot tougher about it, but everyone actually ended up being really classy. A Marvel premiere is a big deal. I'm assuming there's a lot of planning ahead of time that goes into these things. It's not just like, hey, 
we're we're going to be hosting the premiere in Leicester Square Odeon. Just show up on time. I'm assuming these things are planned way in advance, and it's not you're flying in celebrities, you're flying in executives, and then there's sponsors, there's press, there's all these things. How much planning? Goes? It's the talent. That's the biggest thing, right? Like flying in the celebrities, like the executives, sure, the sponsors, yes, and the celebrity, like if. RDJ and Scarlett and Mickey Rourke and those people aren't going to be there, then you can't really have the premier event that everybody wants to have. But yeah, there's a, there's a ton of contracts. So that's more of a marketing publicity event than really a creative theatrical event. I mean, it is a fun sort of celebration of the film. It's a huge party and every you know everyone's eyes are on that film for that night, which is great. But it's supposed to be fun, right? And, th and that was the thing about it, right? Like, it wasn't antagonistic that we had to move it. Everyone got the fact that there was this volcanic eruption and it wasn't safe to fly into London. And, and at the end of the day, people were reasonable about it. It wasn't like we tried to screw anyone over. And if they couldn't make it to LA, then we ended up working something out with them. But I was just stressed the day it happened because I was going through all the agreements and I'm like, okay, I have to fix XYZ amount of problems. And it ended up being fine. Well, speaking of like movie productions, film productions, in this case too, you know, there are economical situations that are impacted for Ukraine here from an entertainment standpoint in terms of like the Ukrainian production industry, which is like one could look at it like, oh, well, obviously movies and stuff get paused. But in this case, Ukraine has put a lot of work and time and economic inflow into their production industry for films and documentaries and stuff to be filmed there. Can we talk about that a bit? Because like, I think it is important to know that like, there is something when it comes to creating a movie or creating a TV series or whatever, there are areas that we're familiar with, um, or at least I as, as a fan, you from an industry standpoint where you have cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Atlanta that are very, very like pro production, come here, produce for us, why in this case is it important for a city? Like what benefit does it have having like a production industry? And in this case, Ukraine, like why is it a reason that they are creating an ecosystem here and how was it benefiting them? And then now how is it impacted? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in that question. So let's break it into pieces. So to answer your question, you know, entertainment was traditionally LA, New York focused for a long time. That's where most of the content was made. That's where a lot of the sort of companies were based and the executives and decision makers and the talent and crew. And so over time, they had the best equipment and sound stages and all the infrastructure to make content, right? Because it's not the kind of thing you can't just, I mean, as technology has gotten better and iPhones have gotten better, sure, it's more ubiquitous, but to make high budget and high quality content requires very talented, sophisticated, unique uh, skills and equipment. And there wasn't a lot of that outside of New York and LA, and it takes time to sort of grow that organically. And cities, as you mentioned, Vancouver and Toronto and Atlanta and others around the globe have tried to encourage these businesses to grow within their borders by creating basically tax credits. So they'll create production incentives to say, hey, if you come and spend, let's say $20 million on qualified spend in this city, at the end of your production, we'll have an audit 
and we'll give you 20% credit on that, right? So, hey, come film in Atlanta. And that doesn't necessarily pay immediate dividends. It does peak interest because that's a that's a huge sort of help to the bottom line of a, of a film or a TV show. But uh, if you don't have the people there to make the product, then you know it's not necessarily going to be as impactful. Right. So over time, if you look at something like Atlanta, where the production business has grown exponentially, they've now gotten sound stages and even hotels, and there's freelancers there and artists and people, and there's a critical mass of production happening year round in Atlanta because of the tax credit that's been in place for 10 years and it's stable. And so Ukraine was trying to follow in that model. And in 2016, they created a production incentive, a tax credit. And um, it looked like they were having a ton of success growing their sort of nascent film and TV production industry. And they were making a lot of really cool content. And remember, I mean, Ukraine basically got independence in the 90s. Right. So as far as like the timeline, it's it's kind of emerging as right. its own entity really quickly. And to have something like this happen is so tragic for a lot of reasons. But one of them is because it sort of slaps the progress they were making in their in their really young film and TV industry. Let's talk about actual shows or productions that people might be familiar with that were related in terms of Ukraine, but also produced there or stories about that. I know that you, you've watched a few shows and there's documentaries that have been made Let's talk about some of the wins that they were having when it comes to production that people might not be aware of. Well, I think most people are probably aware of it because uh, it won so many awards, but I really like Chernobyl, the limited series on HBO Max that came out, I think, in 2020. Yeah. I haven't seen it, and I, I, I've been wanting to see it, but I know you've watched the whole thing. I loved it. It's not that many episodes, but after I watched the first one, I, I was hooked. Uh, you know, love Jared Harris, the writing, the directing. It was so tense. And it actually was filmed in Lithuania, I'm told. Right. But, you know, that's in the same region. So the landscapes and, and, and the settings were probably very similar. Obviously, you're not going to shoot something in Chernobyl itself. Right, right. And then I think Rhino and was, I think, a story. I haven't seen it, but it, Rhino and Klondike have both won awards. And they were made in Ukraine by Ukraine crew or Ukrainian crew. And I mean... I guess what I'm saying is they were just getting started. They were just getting off the ground. HBO Europe was starting to buy up a lot of their content and mm. they showed a lot of promise. And so we hope that they can continue and that they're not set back, you know, decades of, they're not losing decades of progress, but we just don't know. Yeah, in this case, we know that the production industry, along with everything else, is impacted. But obviously, this is an entertainment show. We talk about the business behind these things. And it is also interesting because, like, it's not just Ukraine production and stuff that we're seeing now. And as you win more awards, it's more and more eyes, not from a viewership standpoint, but from like a production and business standpoint where it's like, okay, great. They have the infrastructure. They have the talent. They have people. We can do more with Ukrainian production. And um, granted, this is not a Ukrainian production, but it is a production about the story of Ukraine. And our guy, Sean Penn, has made a clear statement and stand here, you know, when it comes to obviously, look, celebrities say things, they make statements, they stand with certain, you know, whether they agree with something politically or they don't geopolitically. In this case, Sean Penn has been very involved in wanting to tell the story of what's happening in Ukraine. 
Sean Penn is on the ground in Ukraine making a documentary about Russia's ongoing invasion of the country. The Doc is a Vice Studios production in association with Vice World News and Endeavor content. The Office of the President of Ukraine released a statement on Facebook Thursday about Penn's presence in Ukraine and praised the actor for telling, quote, the world the truth about Russia's invasion of our country. And it wasn't like as soon as the invasion happened, he went there. He, he's been there for a while creating a documentary with Vice to tell this story and tell about the tensions between Ukraine and Russia and the potential now what we have as an invasion. But Sean Penn's been there for a while wanting to expose this on a bigger level. Yeah, it's not like he booked a flight last week. I mean, he's been there since when? Since November. Right. Working with Vice. And Sean, you know, he's at this point, he's transcended just being a great actor. He's gotten involved in so many causes like the the Haiti earthquake and this, but it's a real testament to him, to the risk he's willing to take to tell this story, to go there, be on the ground and and not rush it. So like you said, he's been there since November. I mean, the troop buildup has been happening for months. So whether or not it was a national or international headline until a couple of weeks ago, he knew. And he felt right. like being on the ground was the best way to tell this story authentically. And I'm very interested to see what comes out of it. But to your earlier point, you know, these businesses and production businesses are not built in a day. So if you were to shoot a film, you know, you need a lot of different things, a lot of different team members and sources of skill, like special effects, crew, props, lighting, cameras, equipment, rigging, art direction, and set design, and all these different skills. And the problem is these aren't like full-time jobs, right? They're not year round. So you work on something for four five, six, ten 10 weeks, and then you might not have another job. So if you don't have a consistent amount of production work, then people don't necessarily want to live in that area that do that thing. So you need both. You need the supply and you need the demand. And they take years to sort of grow organically. And the question is, if large international streamers and um, content studios sort of avoid Ukraine because of this risk, then maybe the demand starts to decrease. And then the people that are really talented in those areas start to move somewhere else. So it's a very delicate business to get off the ground. And the, and it's unclear that it will, right? Because if, if you can't open up bank accounts or fly within the country and it's martial law, like how are you going to make films? Yeah, and I think in the case of, you know, Vice Productions or Vice Studios and Sean Penn being there before the invasion actually happened, I'm sure that they also have their measures on they're on the ground and invasion happens. Now, what are the legal implications of not only do you have a Sean Penn there who probably, you know, wants to stay there and tell the story he's on the ground, but they also have to think, okay, we have to do what's in the best interest of our production company, the safety of our people, the safety of our celebrity producer here. You know, we don't know where this is going to go for them, but I'm sure that they're taking that into account as well, whether they stay there or they leave. I mean, granted, it is journalism and there is a documentary being made. So one would assume that they do stay there, but that's also got to be risks involved too. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, ultimately, you know, you want to tell a story, but you got to keep your people safe and manage the liability there. So if someone wants to be there of their own will, and they accept the risk, that's that's one thing. If if you moved people there and didn't anticipate this were to happen, then you got to get them out, right? And and sort of like put a pause, like it's a force majeure, as we were talking about earlier, you pause the production, 
get everyone out. Sounds like Sean Penn sort of understood the risk and felt like it was a calling for him to be there and tell the story. And they'll probably do everything they can to keep him safe. But it doesn't sound like to me that he's planning to leave right now. So, Paul, I, I mean, look, I think this has been super informative and obviously unfortunate that we're even talking about this. But, you know, again, this is an entertainment business show. And we thought it was important for us to highlight some of the the impact of what's happening here and how it affects not only the Ukrainian entertainment industry, but just entertainment in general um, and, you know, people taking a stand and people making statements. But obviously we wanted to inform our audience here. And, and I think you did a great job really putting all this out there and for people to think like this affects multiple industries and multiple people who work really, really hard. And um, it's unfortunate. Obviously we hope things get better and uh, you know, in our next episode, if there's something to talk about, we'll talk about it. But, you know, hopefully we get to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted and uh, have people be able to escape a lot of the shitty stuff that's happening in the world right now. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's such a sad thing to happen and we're not trying to make sense of it all or explain every angle of it to everyone. But we just wanted to sort of highlight the, the couple instances in entertainment that we knew about where there were some really tragic consequences for super talented, hardworking people. And I think I speak for you when I say, we hope that this is not a forever thing and that there's a quick rebound and that you know, Ukrainian people are no longer suffering and they can uh, keep making content because we love their potential and, and we just want to see more of it. Totally agree, Paul. And um, thanks for, again, as always, your angles on this side of things. That's our episode for this week, folks. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll be back next week. Stay safe. Thanks, everyone.